0: So let's look at Genesis chapter 47. If you've got your Bibles, let's open up. And we won't be starting from verse 1 because Sam's already covered that uh, last week. But we're going to be looking at verse 13. And going down to the end of the chapter. And it, it, is, it is a challenging passage because, and if you've read ahead yet, you, you've noticed there's a lot of things of slavery. Okay, and it's a bit challenging because Joseph, if you remember, is meant to be this kind of pre of Jesus. He is the guy, the guy who is in some sense perfect. If you remember way back, Sam even mentioned when we first, first started looking at this Joseph, uh, Joseph narrative, that Joseph is one of the few patriarchs who isn't mentioned as having any sin. This guy is perfect. but Well, obviously not perfect perfect, but he's kind of built up in order to be an uh, uh, embodiment of Jesus. But what we find here is he's in some sense endorsing slavery. And so it is quite a challenge, but we'll work our way through it. So starting there in verse 13, it says, there was no food however in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of famine. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying. He brought it to Pharaoh's palace. When the money of the people So when the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, give us food, why should we die before your eyes? Our money is all gone. Then bring your livestock, said Joseph. I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock, since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and he gave them food in exchange for for their horses, their sheep, and goats, their cattle, and donkeys. And he brought them through that year with food in exchange for all their livestock, when that year was over, they came to him the following year and said, "We cannot hide from our lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there is nothing left for our lord except our bodies and eyes. So, bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes? We and our lord, we and our land as well. Buy us and our land in exchange for food, and we, with our land, will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seed to." Give us seeds so that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land in Egypt Egypt, for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields, because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's, and Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. However, he did not buy the land of the priests because they received a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and had food enough from the allowance Pharaoh gave them. That is why they did not sell their land. Joseph said to the people, Now that I have bought you and your land, uh, now that I have bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here is seed for you so that you can plant the grounds. But when the crops came in, give when the crops come in, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. The other fourth of the fifths you may keep as seed for the you may keep as seed for the fields and as food for yourselves and your household and your children. You have saved our lives, they said. May we find favour in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. So so Joseph established it as a law concerning the land in Egypt. Still in force today. That a fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. It was only the land of the priests that did not come Pharaoh's. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there. And were fruitful and increased greatly in number. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I would do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff." Great passage. Have we have a quick prayer, then we can look at a few different points here and learn a little bit about Joseph and Jacob. Uh, Heavenly Father, I yeah, thank so much, even as camera is sharing, that You would take us not because of our own greatness, Lord, or our own own uh, abilities, but only purely on Your grace and Your love for us. That You would take us from a dark, foolish world, and You would bring us in for a new, a new life, Lord, a new kingdom, and repurpose us for Your our greater purposes. I love you for everything you do. And I pray as we look at the example of Joseph and Jacob, that your spirit can move in our hearts, Lord, convict us and guide us, and so that we may more adequately understand the things of heaven, so that we can really pursue a more godly character and ultimately, Lord, pursue people who reflect the, the, the character of your son. I love you and presence in your precious name. Amen. Amen. So, Joseph and the fa- fa- famine. Oh, my gosh, it's not working. Here we are. So, I have a few points here, okay? And, and the first point I really want to look at here is that what we find with Joseph and Jacob is that they have a really fortified faith. When we've gone through the journey of, of Joseph and Jacob, it's not been easy, right? It's been a bit of a challenge. Both of them have overcome many obstacles, many challenges, but they're still present. They have that kind of persistent, relentless faith where they keep on going. And we're going to look at what it actually means to have that type of character. But not only are we going to look at what it means to have that character, we're going to look at what it means to actually have that character, like, actually gain that character. Like, what are the practical steps? And that's my next two points here. First of all, we have Joseph. He enslaves to save. He takes something which, from our modern lens, we'd say, well, that's quite negative. And he uses it, he turns it for the salvation of the Egyptians. And it's it's a radical idea. But secondly, we have Jacob, who yearns to return. Here he is at the end of his life, and what what is he primarily focused on? Take me home, Joseph. Swear an oath. Bring me back to land of Canaan, so that is where I can be buried. Which is a remarkable idea, considering how long he spent in Egypt. These guys absolutely embody the idea of resilience. They're in it for the long haul. Good times, bad times. Here they are, and we need that type of fortified by faith. So to start off with, let's look at what it means to have a fortified faith, okay? And Jesus talks about this idea as well in Matthew 24, verse 13. And this is all in the context of kind of the end days. And if you're familiar with this passage, the idea is that it's not going to be easy. (laughs) It's going to be tough. You're going to receive persecution. But what Jesus says to build up and encourage his disciples is that the, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. The one who perseveres We'll be saved. This is a this is a crazy idea because sometimes we can get we can get content with our our faith. We get baptized, we, we follow God for a, a, you know, and then in that first few years, we have a, we have a zeal, we have a passion. But where does it go after a decade? Where does it go after 20, 30 years? Do we have that same passion that we first started with? And the reality is we can lose it that's the nature of the, of, of the world we live in. The world wears on us, and as foreigners living in a world which is not our own, a, a place which, which is not our own, it's so easy for us to be shaped and moulded by the world rather than God. And it's, it's so important that we have the conviction that we are going to stick with God no matter what. We're going to stand firm in our faith. And this is exactly what we see with Joseph, for example. I mean, Joseph has not had an easy time, right? Consider the fact that he's sold into slavery by his brothers, he's brought into Egypt, he's falsely accused of sexual assaults. During that entire period of suffering, of persecution, Joseph is still faithful to God. He's still persevering in his beliefs. And it's such a, a, a crazy thing. And what I find most crazy is that it's not just the downs when Joseph is holding him tight to God. It's also the ups. I mean, so many of us will look at the greatest threats to our faith as being the hard times when the reality is it's often the good times that, make, that makes us waver in our convictions. Yeah. When the money's flowing in, when the relationships are good, when our marriages are good, that's when we feel most stable. And when we start to feel stable, when we start to feel good about ourselves, that our feelings of self sufficiency start to creep in. But what we notice, even when Joseph comes out of prison, when he is elevated to the very top, when he's one of the most powerful men in the known world, what is he doing in this chapter? He's still pursuing the command that God's given him. It's it's really inspiring to see that when we look, when we think back in Genesis 41, Joseph is given a purpose by God to provide for Egypt. It says in verse 16 to 48, I started in verse 16, it says, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. So Joseph knows this is from God. And then Pharaoh goes on to appoint Joseph with the role of, during that seven years of prosperity, you are going to provide and store away grain so that when the seven years of famine come, we can survive. And what we find here from 13 to 14 of chapter 47, that is exactly what Joseph is doing. He's been given this task decades ago. Decades. And he is studi- studiously obeying God, unwavering, even during the hardest times. And what I find really interesting is that in verse 14 of our, of our chapter, it says Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in, in payment for the grain that they were buying. And he brought it to Pharaoh's house. Now I don't know about you guys, if the salvation of Egypt hinged on my ability to be studious and meticulous in providing for people and storing away, storing away grain. I mean the temptation always well, I'm entitled to a bit. But no, Joseph is meticulous. All the money goes to Pharaoh's household because he knows that is his task. He's been given a task by God, and he's got to fulfill it. Year after year, day after day, week after week, this is what he's doing. And we find the same thing with Jacob as well. I mean, verse 29 to 30, Jacob's primary concern at the end of his life isn't about necessarily getting comfortable. It's not about, hey, Joseph, give me a hand here. It's all about him getting ready To go back to the land which God has given him. The end of Jacob's life is defined by the promise given to him by God. Joseph, swear me an oath. Take me back. Egypt is not my home. Egypt is not my home. But so often, I think we can get in that mindset. Well, because the promised land is far off for us, that we can start to fall into the self-deceit of maybe Egypt is our home. This world maybe can be a place where I can resign. But that's not how Jacob sees it. He's a foreigner passing through, and he's looking forward to something far, far greater. I feel, I feel like we should be doing so as well. And, uh, and my question for us is, like, do we have this type of fortitude in our faith? Are we resilient in the good times and bad times?
1: Or is our spiritual life
0: kind of like a wave? This goes ups and up and down with the different highs and lows of life. Guys, we got to say, Jacob, though he has to be ups and downs, but Jacob and Joseph overall have a steady faithfulness to God. And it stands the test of time. It's not easy. It's not easy to do. I feel like one of the greatest tragedies in church is when you hear people, mature disciples, talk about how in the good old days, in the glory days. Oh, yeah, man, I would baptize seven people before breakfast. Now, you know, it's, you hear all these crazy stories. Oh, I planted this church, I did that. But it's all in the, kind of in the lens of it's in the past, yeah, yeah. it's finished. Yeah. Now, what has happened to our faith if that is our mindset? You think your discipleship finishes because you're not young anymore? I and mean, what's incredible is that I feel like, especially with this church, is that we have such a high percentage of young Christians who desperately need guidance. At the same time, we have such a high percentage of older Christians who are able to guide. And it always hurts, hurts me a little bit when one of the older guys uh, uh, would note as a younger person gets on to speak, who is that person? I haven't met that person yet. We have a need which you are tailor made for meeting. If you're an older disciple, you have a stock of wisdom. You're not expired yet. Okay? You have a next generation you need to raise up. And we need to step up if we are going to be God's people. Amen? Amen. Amen. So how, how how do we develop that steadfast character? Well... If you're good eyesight, you be able to read it. But hopefully you can see the pictures, okay? And uh, this, this is a, a picture from a guy named Dan Crenshaw, and I was listening to a podcast recently by Jordan Peterson, and Dan Crenshaw was being interviewed, and he is a ex-Navy SEAL member. And so in terms of discipline, in terms of conviction, in terms of uh, resilience, this guy is pretty high up there. And his story is that while he was on tour in Afghanistan, he actually, uh, uh, he, his uh, platoon or his, 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 um, his buddies, one of them stepped on an IED, an explosive. That guy was exploded, but it hurt also uh, Dan as well. And you can see up there, he has an eye patch, was, his eye was blown out. It's a pretty extraordinary story, right? But what's most extraordinary is that despite that injury, despite being out for several months, not even being able to see, He goes back out there again. He continues to serve and he has that extreme patriotism where, you know what, I've been given a task, a role, and I'm going to fulfill that role until the very last piece of me is gone. And he gives this quote in his book. Uh, I feel like this quote is really useful for us understanding what it means to have resilient character in general. He says, My mental outcomes were a consequence of my habits, and my habits were a consequence of my choices. It is true that character is to some extent innate, our genetic makeup imbues us in, us, in us certain proclivities, but it is as true that character is mostly a consequence of choices. We all make them, and we should make them deliberately, with the knowledge that these choices are part of our responsibility towards a purpose other than our own selfish aims. That responsibility is to your family, your friends, community, and country. I think what what Dan is touching on here is an ancient truth that if we want resilient character, it goes back to our choices. And if we want to make good choices, it comes back to having a clear perspective of this is my responsibility. I mean, Dan Dan Crenshaw is the type of guy who says, this is my role, I'm gonna fulfill that role. That's the same as Joseph and Jacob. Joseph says, This is my role, my responsibility to look after Egypt. That because that is a clearly defined responsibility, I'm going to fulfill it. But we can sometimes lose focus of what our responsibility as Christians actually is. Sometimes we get a bit fuzzy occasionally, okay? But we could we gotta reorientate ourselves and realize and remember that we have a responsibility. And the greater the responsibility, the greater the character growth. I mean, he mentions here several different uh, relationships, like family, friends, community, and country. The responsibility of a friendship is challenging. To be a good friend is challenging. And it requires a certain degree of character. But when you talk about marriage, marriage is challenging. Marriage is tough, okay? I've only been married a short time. I think I'm beginning to recognize it's tough. Okay? It's, it's hard. You've got to slug it out sometimes and really work hard at your marriage. It requires deliberate effort. But because marriage is a more challenging responsibility, it demands a more uh, refined and greater character to meet that responsibility. Amen. So the reality is, the greater the responsibility, the greater your character will rise to meet it. We've got to keep our perspective on what the responsibilities are. We've got to take ownership of our responsibilities. And there's two things here, two responsibilities I wanna to touch on, and one is demonstrated in Joseph, and the other is demonstrated in Jacob, okay? So let's look at Joseph first of all. And so this is my second point, Joseph enslaves to save. Oh no, it's the slavery part, oh, It's It's a little bit intimidating, okay? Even when I first read it, I'm like, oh my gosh, how am I going to talk about Joseph enslaving Egypt? And even as I was reading commentaries and different opinions online, Sometimes it's, it's quite negative. Even the, um, even the picture up there is called, uh, I couldn't find many pictures, but this picture is called uh, Joseph the Oppressor. I feel like that's, that's, a, that's a bit of a narrow viewpoint, okay? Especially when you consider, it, consider the Bible's viewpoints on slavery is not prescriptive. What I mean by that, the Bible does not support slavery. It's not prescriptive, it's descriptive. When we we read about slavery in the Bible, we're just reading about the social habitat in which the Bible is located. This was normal back in those days. And sometimes we can take our modern perspective and think in our arrogance that I know better than the Bible. And we can push our own opinions and and, and, and a sense of moral high ground onto the Bible thinking that we know better. But the reality is, we don't. We don't. The Bible erodes. It actually actually destroys the ideas and principles behind slavery. Consider Genesis 1, verse 27. The very opening chapter of Genesis, the opening chapter of the Scriptures. says, so God created mankind in his own image. In his image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. If anyone ever says to you, hey, the Bible supports slavery, you're going to be like, This is a revolutionary text in that time. The only people who were made in the image of God were the kings. The Bible says, you know what? Mankind, male and female, Joseph is not supporting slavery here. He's He's not doing that. But what he is doing is that he's finding a way for Egypt to be saved. It's all about salvation. And as we read... We can, we can pick up on a few things. Like this is our modern understanding of what slavery is. It does not fit into what Joseph is doing here. First of all, look at the fact that in verse 25 of our chapter. The Egyptians say to Joseph, you have saved our lives. They said, May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord, we will be in bondage to Pharaoh. They are grateful. <laughs> You've saved our lives. It's not our stink. We're oppressed now. We're in bondage now. It's thank you, Joseph. You've made a way for us to survive. Secondly, when you look at the Hebrew text, okay, and in verse 17 it says that uh, it says that Joseph he brought them through this year. Now, that may seem, I mean, not particularly relevant, but when we look at Hebrew, the word "brought" is the same the same uh, 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 language which we find in places like Psalm 23. He leads me besides quiet waters, and the Hebrew for "brought" just means to lead to a refreshing place. Does that sound like slavery? Does that sound like oppression? No, absolutely not. Joseph is leading them to salvation, to refreshments. And then, thirdly, we're going to note that the tax, which is given by Joseph, of twenty percent of one fifth. That's actually incredibly generous. I mean, back in those days, if you went into debt bondage, which was common, if you couldn't pay off your debts with your money, your livestock, the only thing you had left was your body, you went into debt bondage. And you had to pay that debt at a rate of 33 to like 50%, that was normal. And so when Joseph says 20%, that's actually incredibly generous. And the reason why is because Joseph is not looking to oppress people, he's actually trying to help people who are in a hard time get back on their feet. You take, you give that one fifth, but those four fifths, the the remaining 80%, you store that for yourself. You use that for your family, your children. You use that to to find your feet and, and get back up to become independent again, okay? And And really, the question we need to be asking ourselves is that where does this generosity come from in Joseph? What is the root and what is the application for us? I think the root of it is the fact that in his perspective, is that his leadership has not come from him. If you guys think way back to Genesis 45 verse 9, it says, Now hurry back to my father's, this is Joseph speaking to his brothers, Hurry back to my father and say to him, This is what your son Joseph says, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Joseph knows that where he is, his position, is because of God's providence. And that is his primary model, his primary example of a master-servant relationship. And so when he becomes the master, when he has servants, He shows the same type of grace and patience that God has shown him. This is why Sam last week was talking so much about us keeping a perspective of God's providence in our lives. Because as soon as we lose sight of what God has done for us, as soon as Cameron loses sight of the fact that he once was addicted to video games and (laughs) losing, no, uh, and and, and struggling, loses that perspective of what God has brought him from, then the way he chooses to be a disciple radically changes. Joseph has been put in the position despite all the hard times, and that's because of God. And that shapes the way he treats other people. And this is quite a hack here from uh, J. Oswald Sanders. It says, the perseverance, which is what we're talking about, being, you know, persevering and enduring, the perseverance of the saints is only possible because of the perseverance of God. Joseph knows it. Joseph knows, knows that God has been enduring for him. And he's going to endure for these people now that he's been put in the position of power. And we've got to think, in what ways can we pass on the gift that we've been given? And what ways can we provide in response, in light of what has been provided for us? We all have stuff, we all have, we have abilities, we have finances, we have things at our disposal, but they are not attributed, attributed to you. It is foolish to look at what you have and think, that is me building my kingdom, because that is actually God providing for you. And it's God providing for you because He desires you to play a role in a larger plan, a larger redemptive purpose for the world. And what an honor that is. What an honor that is that we've to play a purpose as well. And when I think about this, this idea of salvation being connected to slavery, which is exactly what the Egyptians received, that's the same for us, isn't it? When we are saved, it says in Romans 6, that we, or it says, in Romans 6, verse 18, it says, you have been set free from sin. Yay, we love that. We've been set free and have become slaves to righteousness. Oh, okay, I feel, I feel a little bit, yeah, some negative feelings towards, towards the idea of being a slave. But what we need to understand is that slavery to righteousness goes hand in hand to being set free from sin. And if we're slaves to righteousness, then the way we choose to live our life is very different. A slave does not say to his master, you know what, I want to own some time off. I, can't, I don't really feel like it today. I'm not, I'm not really in it, okay? I need a mental health break or whatever, okay? A, a person who is a slave does what the master says. Because the slave's responsibility, his purpose or her purpose in life, is the will of the master. And that's such a crazy idea that we have been brought into slavery to righteousness and bondage to righteousness. And that should make us joyful. So I think the the life of a disciple can feel like a burden sometimes. The reality is, slavery to God is not a burden. What I I would encourage you to think about is, imagine the Egyptians in their first harvest, and they had to give 20% of that harvest to Pharaoh. It wouldn't be, oh gosh, what a burden this is. It would be joyful. Because they know that even though they have to give 20%, 100% of that has come not from them in the first place. The fact that they have 80% to save for themselves is a testament to God or Joseph's providence. And when we keep in sight the fact that we have been given stuff, when we have been provided for, it makes it so much easier for us to give. And what the Bible says, the Bible doesn't want 20%, the Bible wants a sacrificed life. God demands enslavement. It's it's a scary idea that God demands a life fully offered in sacrificial worship to Him. And when we give that, I mean, that should be a sense of joy because what did we have to begin with? What did we have at our disposal at all in, in the first place? Nothing. And it really changes the way we look at what it means to give and sacrifice, yeah? Because the reality is that we're all slaves to something. That's what Romans 6 says. You're either a slave to righteousness or you're a slave to sin. So don't get duped into thinking that, oh gosh, I I can follow God. I can be a slave to righteousness. And kind of tiptoe around and and, and really not fully invest myself. God demands full investments. We know that when we first get baptized. We know that when we first start to follow God. But do we know it now? Is that a reality of our life? So are we sold out for Christ fully? Do we have that type of conviction? And if not, why? If you find yourself compromising consistently in your faith, why is it? And well, I would contend that the reason why is because we're not fully understanding the reality of what God has done for us. And we, we need to pick up on it, guys. There's a quote here from Matt Welsh, and he writes a book called Church of Cowards. I'm not calling anyone here a coward, but it's an appropriate, it's appropriate quotes. And what he says, he says, Christ says, pick up your cross and follow me, but we take it as a suggestion. Just one possible way to live the Christian life. We leave our crosses on the side of the road and head back inside where it's warm. There's Netflix shows to binge. We tell ourselves that we'll be fine in the end because we are decent people and we are leading normal lives and God cannot penalize what is normal. The reality is that we're not called to be normal. We're called to be set apart. We're called to be difference. Amen? As we look at the last point I have here, I finish. finish. Uh, it's Jacob yearns to return. Now, if we, we understand Joseph's, Joseph's perspective of being a slave, if we really embody that responsibility, then our faith is going to be more resilient. But we also need to re- embody the idea or, or the, uh, uh, the nature of what it means to be a foreigner in a foreign country. Because that's exactly how Jacob perceives who he is. In verse 29 to 31 it says, If, you, if I have found favour in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness, do not bury me in Egypt? Do not bury me here in Egypt? I feel like if I was in Jacob's uh, position, it would be tempting to be buried in Egypt. I mean, just early in this chapter, at the beginning of uh, chapter 47, We have Jacob blessing Pharaoh. And remember, it's always the higher person who blesses the lesser. So when Jacob blesses the most powerful man in Egypt, he's been elevated to an absolute pinnacle of honor. He's been there for 14 years in that position of honor. It would be tempting just like, you know what? Egypt is not so bad. To justify and validate this idea that Egypt is okay to settle in. But he has an urgency about it. Verse 31, he says, Swear to me. He repeats it twice to Joseph. Swear to me, you're not going to leave me here. This is not my home. This is not where I belong. Where I belong is the land in which God has promised me. That's where I belong. It's the same for us today, as slaves of Christ. Have we arrived at our destination yet? Absolutely not. I hope not. This is definitely not heaven. This is definitely not the promised land. The Bible says that the promised land is upcoming. When Christ returns, earth and heaven will be renewed and restored, and we are going to experience a new creation. And we, just like Jacob, should be yearning for it. Yearning for it. Because when we have such a future mindset, a future perspective of what is to come, then it takes all the temptation from now, and it nullifies it. I mean, especially amongst young men, the, the, the temptation to live with here and now, whether it be sexual promiscuity, or whether it be uh, just uh, making stupid choices in general, is, is immense. We, uh, it's, it's a struggle. But when we have a mindset that I am a resident of a future kingdom, and that's where my heart is, then those temptations become cold. Those temptations lose their hold. And we have to truly embrace what God has to offer us. Mm. So, there's two things that I want, I, I kind of plead with us today to remember that we are slaves and we are foreigners. Amen. And if we want to have a fortitude, a, a, a relentlessness to our faith, where we go year after year after year of obediently or meticulous, meticulously obeying God we need to remember those responsibilities because the character will catch up the character will catch up eventually and so just to finish up i just want to look at two quick passages uh the first one is in uh first uh first peter chapter two he says dear friends i urge you as foreigners and exiles peter knows that with foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires peter knows that a perspective of the future allows us to live a more fruitful life now. And then finally, Hebrews 11, verse 13 and 16, and this is the concluding kind of verse. All these people, referred to the patriarchs, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised, they only saw them and were to welcome them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. God has a city prepared for us, guys. Amen. A heavenly city, one far greater than anything we have here, so why would we live our life as if this was our home? Yeah. Why would we make choices that maybe suggest that we care more about now than we do about the far greater thing around the corner? So yeah, let's have a fortified faith and uh, let's remember that we are slaves and that we are foreigners in a in a, a very different world, okay? A world which is not our home yet. All right, uh, let's have a quick prayer and then we can uh, finish up with uh, some songs fellowship. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, um, yeah, thank you so much, Lord, that we, you've given us these examples of Jake, uh, Jacob and Joseph, uh, of people who have uh, persevered uh, in following you. And uh, we know that it's not easy to follow you. Sometimes there's a lot of pressures from this world, uh, pressures from our own sinful nature, Lord. But I pray, Lord, we can have a, a sense of fortitude in our faith. That no matter what circumstances may uh, come against us, Lord, that we may stay steadfast, holding to the end, so that we may be saved. And that when we meet you one day in heaven, Lord, you may look at us and say, "Well done, good and faithful servants." I pray, Lord, um, the reality is that you have something far greater for us in the future, and use us in really shapes who we are today, Lord, and the way we live. Now we can live for a future which is far greater than anything we could possibly comprehend. I love you and I thank you so much that it's all possible by the sacrifice that your son has made. And that without him, without that sacrifice, none of this would be possible. There would be no promise. There would be no responsibility. There would be no potential for our characters to grow and change. And I thank you, Lord, that you're not content with where we are. You call us higher every day. I love you and pray this in your precious name. Amen.